once more unto the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. All right. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, and welcome to another ultra exciting episode of the Personal Wealth Coach, where we'll bring to mind such exciting topics as the telegraph. And that's it. Where that's all we're no, no, we'll have some other things to talk about too. We'll we'll do hopefully some stuff that will uh, tickle your brain. Uh, or at least stimulated into learning something. But before but you skipped who we were. Yeah, before we do that, this is so the personal wealth say, coach. You didn't say our names. This is uh, with... Said, Welcome to the personal wealth coach, and you normally say with... With Jake and... Jeff McClure. See, we that's our... Yeah, okay, we, I'm we, done. We, I okay, go we're done. We, we have said our names. Right. We did it in unison, and you'll never know how many years we worked on that to coordinate it. And then the pandemic threw it all off because everything's virtual, and you got this time lag in the camera, and... Yeah. Uh, Virtual and AI, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we are we are coming to you. First, we've got to give you a bunch of disclosures. Number one, we are both bald. If that offends you, you may immediately change the channel. Number two, we're both That's bearded. Bald. That's a bald-faced statement. It, well, the bearded part means it's not bald-faced. Oh, that's so, correct. Yes. It's a, it's a bald-pated uh, statement. Uh, so and we're not completely bald on, on our heads, just on the top. Uh, the the front of our heads are covered nicely in fuzz. Okay, those are the the very, very important disclosures. The not so important disclosures, this, this is the name, the name of this program is also the name of an SEC registered investment advisory firm. And it's not at all coincidental. The name of the program is the personal wealth coach. The name of the firm is the personal wealth coach. The program came first, side note, before the firm. We've been doing this program since 1998 together. You started in 96, right? Right. So, I did. so we have combined about 79 years. No, no, there's no combination of you can't do that. It's just from then. Okay. All right. Wouldn't it be nice if you can, our firm has a combined 3 million years of experience. It's all the same 3 million people over the first one year. They're all newbies. Yes. No. So we've been around a while. We've been doing this a while. We're doing this not as investment advice. Why? Well, what we just said we're registered with the SEC to give investment advice at the firm level. Well, you can't give investment advice on the air. Well, what about all those other programs that tell you what stocks and bonds to buy? That's not fiduciary investment advice. That's somebody just saying, this is cool. This is cool. Under the SEC rules, to give advice, you've got to be acting in the best interest of the person you're giving advice to. And we may or may not know everybody that's listening. Probably don't know everybody that's listening, but we may be the only ones listening. So, But even so, it's being broadcast, so there's privacy issues. So what are we doing? We just said we're fiduciary investment advisors and doing this stuff for the firm and all that. Good Now, yeah, but now you're on the air and you can't give fiduciary investment advice. What the heck are you two bald guys doing? Hopefully, we're giving you some education. Um, we have found a distinct lack of knowledge in the investment and finance world out there. And so the blind leading the blind leads to bad things. So we're at least one-eyed or a little bit myoptic one-eyed, but in the land of the three blind mice, the one-eyed mouse is king. So we're going to attempt to be one-eyed mice if that's not any kind of a mix of metaphors, analogies, and juxtaposition of rhymes and misnomers. There you go. That's another um, disclosure. Our disclosures can be long. 
Um, just because we're registered with the SEC at the firm level doesn't mean that the SEC has given us any kind of a seal of approval, thumbs up, attaboy, or any of the other things in a dark, smoke-filled room that would imagine that the government cares for us over someone else. They're just our regulators, and we're required to talk about them. They also re- they require us to talk about them, and then they require us to say that they don't give us preferential treatment, and they do not. We have not gotten some kind of ordained anointment of holiness from them. They just watch us. Um, but they also watched Madoff, so that doesn't mean that they're doing a good job. They're just who you should complain to if we're doing something stupid. No, not stupid. We do that all the time. Illegal. If we're doing something illegal. There you go. And you're the next one for the disclosure. Hopefully yours will be shorter, quicker, and more clear. Succinct. Succinct, yes. The information we provide on this educational radio program has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable. However, we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. And he practiced an unknown period of time, sometime early in his career, to be able to say that. Because I, this is another disclosure, he's my dad. We've been working together for over 30 years, but that guy that just spoke really fast and so... Since I've been a kid, he's been able to say that really fast about no warranty guarantee. I don't know when you memorized that. I didn't. You, you were born with that knowledge in your head. I just... Purely instinctual. I read it a few times on the air and finally got to where I could say it. So now you say it very well. And it means that we're not... Uh, that while we deem the information to be correct... Uh, uh, I, I can give you a complete guarantee that anything we don't say is incomplete. Yes. Well, we have a couple of questions hanging out there from our most faithful and loyal questioner, John. Inquisitor John has two extremely good questions. Um, And as is tradition, each of his questions is accompanied with the digital picture of an annotated paper Wall Street Journal that we may then compare to our digital version of the Wall Street Journal. And John, for some reason, the articles that you circled on your version of the Wall Street Journal are not circled in ours. I don't know that there's something wrong with the app, I think. Well, we'll get to that at some point in the future uh, with AI, I'm sure. So his two questions, I'm going to cover one and Elder Baldy Jeff is going to cover the other. Uh, His first question is what is Fedwire? What is it and how does it work? He's got an article circled that is talking about the problems that could occur in the economy, and there are many of them, in the event that Congress defaults on our debt, that we don't raise the debt ceiling. Um, there's a, that's a big, big, big subject. So he's got one tiny paragraph of it circled. Among the problems, I'm paraphrasing the beginning of this, the Fed's payment system, called Fedwire, wasn't programmed for late payments on Treasury. And then it jumps to the next page. It's not, the Fedwire, what is the Fedwire and what's it, what, it's, what is its history is his question. Well, those of you that listened about five weeks ago, I gave a pretty good history of the Federal Reserve and how it's kind of evolved through the years and how it started in the in the 19 teens. 
Well, the idea is the Federal Reserve is not a governmental organization, but it's not completely a private organization either. It's a network of banks that regulate themselves. But the people at top at the top of the Fed system are nominated by the president and approved by the Senate. So it's a regulatory board that was enabled by Congress that is purely a non-governmental entity, but it has special agreements with the government. The first National Bank of the United States, the very first one way back in the late 1700s, was just a private bank that was the only one that had a license to deal across state lines. So Congress is the only one that can say what can happen across state lines. If you're in Texas, Texas governs that. As soon as you start dealing with Oklahoma or anybody else, Congress gets involved. Well, Congress originally said, First National Bank, you're the only bank that can do it. We're not really going to regulate you. Just take this contract and go. Well, there were problems with that. There was a lot of political blowback. And then the second national bank was formed, which had a bunch of different regulations and more governmental control. And then Andrew Jackson abolished that. And we went a good long time, almost 100 years without a central bank. We had some pretty severe banking crises in the middle of that. And in 1907, we had a really bad one where the original uh, J.P. Morgan used personal money, the person, not the company, used personal money to bail out the banks. The Federal Reserve Act was established after that, and it made a network of banks that reported together to say what's happening out there, what's what's inflation look like, because we didn't have a good way of measuring it back then. Okay, so this network of banks, they've got to move money around each other. They're a network. So in uh, the late 19-teens, 1918, they established a network, a real network of telegraph wires. Um, First, they just used the normal telegraph system, and they could send a special code, which would tell a telegraph operator to, to not record. How's that for security? And it would go straight to the bank, and the bank would then record the code that would say what account was transferring what amount of money. And it was a way of for the Federal Reserve to say, this money actually exists. I'm transferring it to you. Put it on your books in St. Louis from Denver or, uh, so, New York. or from New York. Hey, we're moving X amount of money to you, and it's real money, and you have it now. So it's kind of like blockchain or internal within a bank. You're just journaling uh, uh, money from one page to another. Um, Then in the 1980s, actually 1980, uh, a law was passed that said, hey, other people should be able to use this too, but they're going to have to pay for it. So if you call your broker and you say, I need $100,000 in my bank, and presuming that you have $100,000 worth of some investment, and you say, I need it right away, normally it might take three or four days to show up in your bank. And then they might sit on the money and not give you access to it till they really double checked everybody in the background to make sure this isn't going to bounce when it arrives. The federal wire, the Fed wire, skips that. The Federal Reserve steps in and says, we recognize that this money actually exists here, and now it's actually going to exist over there. It's a transfer that is watched by the Federal Reserve, in effect. Usually costs somewhere between $10 or $15, most often $15, to do a Fedwire. And that means that you get access to money two days later. The blockchain is the next step in this transfer system. 
not in the crypto market stuff, but as in a way of accounting for this where everybody can watch it at the same time instead of the, paying the Fed $15 to look at it in both places. And I know that's that's kind of a convoluted thing. Um, it is, this article is saying the Fed's payment system, the Fed wire, uh, isn't programmed for late payments on treasury securities. What does that mean? Well, the Federal Reserve is required to remit its interest payments that it receives on federal debt back to the government. So it's like a zero interest loan if the Federal Reserve owns the debt. You still have to pay the principal back. The government has to pay the principal back. But the interest it receives goes back to the government. From the, and uh, they do this at different times, but there's an ad- automatic system that if when the treasury pays an interest payment, it pays on a specific day of a specific every time. And this is the specific day of the month that the interest is paid. And that's what's programmed into their system. If the government stops doing it, if it stops paying interest, the question is, does the Fed have the ability to say that the interest payment didn't occur? Because it's never not occurred since the federal wire the fed wire has existed so it's it's like why would you have to transmit this if you know it's going to be done anyway though in the old system you'd send a telegraph hey the interest has been paid but if it's a if it's a loan from the federal government you know it's going to get paid so you just program it in on this day you're going to receive this and you don't even have to wire it that's what it means and i know that's a convoluted it's like sending messages with on post-it notes um and hey, let's save a post-it note. You know I'm going to give you one on the 12th anyway, just to act like I did. So I'm sure they can reprogram it because it's not a telegraph wire anymore and there aren't people in Morse code trying to read this. The Federal Reserve's got a pretty good software budget, so I think they can get that fixed. And they've had a lot of lead time for this. Um, so that's not what the question was, but I thought I'd address it anyway that may not be a big deal if the government defaults that it's going to be way down on the list uh, you've got another question from him <clears throat> John want. asked what is the bank term funding program and what well, I didn't ask what it was he said what do we take to open the program well John it's already open March 12th the Federal Reserve launched the bank term funding program and had they opened it up a month earlier or a day <laughs> a week earlier <laughs> Republican SVP might not have failed the issue is what happens in the in the bank term lending program is the Fed, let's just say you've got a million, you're in a bank and you've got a million dollars worth of uh, treasury securities. But because interest rates have gone up, the, the market value of those securities may have come down. So your million dollars, this is not a specific, but as an example, might now be worth 800000 If you sold it to provide cash because you were having a run on the bank because somebody tweeted that your bank was in trouble... Um, they take a 20% loss. And that's the, the cycle of doing it. The thing about First Republic and about SVP is they were both invested in longer-term treasuries, which were paying around 3%. And they were they had a lot of people de- with huge deposits, way above the insured level, to whom they were paying less than 1%, which is the, was the norm a year ago. Uh, so they were pocketing on this huge quantity of deposits. They were pocketing the difference between what they're paying the public who has a deposit there and what they're getting on the treasury securities. Well, when the interest rate started up, since they were heavily invested in treasury securities, uh, the value of their treasury securities started to drop and they have to report on that. And then somebody tweeted, uh, the bank's probably going to fail. So people started yanking their money out, which means they actually did have to sell treasury securities 
at a loss to pay the depositors who were stampeding for the door. And the end result is they were put from a nice gain a year ago to a big loss now. And they, they got their gain and their loss because they were trying to be conservative. This is really important. They were being very conservative. They're in California. They weren't loaning money to people to build rickety houses and paying them a million dollars for it. They were putting their money in treasury securities. Which, when maturity comes, they're going to get paid. It's very safe, except between now and maturity, it's not. Yeah. But they do have to post the value of their portfolio. And once they posted the value of the portfolio and somebody saw that it, Peter Thiel or somebody saw that it had gone down, he got on his Twitter app. And, began, and literally told people, if you've got money at SVP, pull it out. Well, no bank can survive a run on the bank there's because a great, your deposits. A, there's a great book. It's not easy to comprehend for a layperson, but the title of it is enough on its own. It's by Farmer, uh, and that's The Macroeconomics of Self-Fulfilling Prophecies. It's like, I better go buy toilet paper because... Otherwise, it's all going to be gone. Other people see you going to buy toilet paper and they go, well, I'm going to buy it. Otherwise, it's gonna, all going to be gone. And then it's all gone. I'm like, oh, I was right. Uh, or, hey, this bank bank failed. And so everybody runs to get their money out of the bank and the bank fails. And they go, oh, how did you know? The same thing. What is the, what's the difference between SVP, First Republic, and the rest of the banks? Well, the rest of the banks, first off, do not have as high a percentage of money in there that's not FDIC insured. They, those were the two high ones in the country so that people would get antsy and nervous and bolt for the door. In both cases, they were aiming for very affluent, wealthy people and businesses. And businesses keep money, a lot of money in the bank so they can make payroll every month. And, and, just, and just, let me throw this in because I get a lot of questions on this. Uh, if you're an established company and you've been doing this for a while, you're more aware of the methodologies to, to protect your money in the bank. There are services that, in essence, you sign an agreement with them. They charge you money for it, but they basically have the ability to open and close bank accounts at other banks across the nation in your name so they can spread the money out. But then there's a, an account that's not even at a bank that is the payment account that's empty at all times except when the money's going out in payroll. It all gets transferred to that one account for payroll on that one moment. And those those networks exist, but those are kind of stodgier, older school. They're not, the tech world isn't aware of them. They're coming out of MIT, not out of Wharton. They didn't go to business school to invent their microchip. So the tech companies' finances, especially when you have like a niche bank like SVB that's saying we can handle it for you and we've never failed before. It's like saying, I'm going to live forever. So far, so good. <laughs> Go ahead. Back to you. Well, what happens is there was a, because of the high percentage of non FDIC money, non FDIC covered money in the bank. And the fact that these are high tech people who can move their money with their smartphone. They did start moving their money with their smartphone. They forced the two banks to, to sell at a loss. The banks have to post when they do that, and that increased the stampede and they went down. The Fed has opened up the bank term funding program so that if a bank is holding a bunch of treasury securities and they need liquidity, they don't have to sell those treasury securities on the open market. They can pledge them to the to the Federal Reserve, and the Federal Reserve will loan them money, the current loan rate, including the surcharges, 4.7% a year. 
for up to a year. So if you're a banker and you got a million, you need to come up with a million dollars in cash quickly because people are going to be withdrawing money. You don't have to go and sell your treasury securities at a loss. You simply pledge them to the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve then loans you the million dollars, admittedly, at 4.7% interest. And you give it to people and they're comfortable and satisfied. And so there's the money's safe and they're cool and they go home. The problem with that, and there is a problem with it, is not free. 4.7%. What? And if they're having, if they're paying 4.7% per year to the Federal Reserve, that eats into their profit too. Yeah, because those, those notes, by their nature, if they're holding them or, or bonds, if they're holding them after purchasing them last year, it means that the interest rate they're getting on those things is a lot lower than 4.7%. This is yeah. costing the bank. It's not a freebie. They've, and this is, if you think of it like buying insurance or getting a loan on your assets so that you have cash on hand, um, that's, that's exactly what's happened here. And I strongly suspect the problems that we've seen because of higher interest rates and thereby lower secondary market valuations on, on Treasury bonds, we're going to see more of that. We're going to see some other elements of that pop up someplace. Sure. Insurance uh, is likely to be a big, I mean, this is, if yeah. you're in a pension and somebody gets audited in the pension, this is maybe one of the scandals that we see. This That's not because of the banking situation. It's because of interest rates. We just... Back in the early 1980s, which during which I was in this business, so I remember this type of thing happened a lot. It happened in slow motion. This one's happening in slow motion. One after another uh, began to fall, and uh, it, it is it is Philip Gray. See more of it. Philip Gray's statement. You don't know who's not wearing swimsuit till the, the tide goes out. And this is exactly the case. The first republic, at, republic, we were talking about this before the program started. Um, in the world of banking, it's kind of like the joke about you see a bear and you run away. You don't have to be faster than the bear. You just have to be faster than your slowest friend. Uh, in the banking world, it's kind of the opposite of that. The highest risk takers... Every bank wants to take enough risks to mac maximize profits, but they also have to walk that line where they don't lose out. They don't want to get shut down by the regulators, get a big fine or have a run on the bank. So the goal in the banking world is to run fast, but not as fast as the guy up front. Because generally speaking, the guy up front, you said this at the beginning of this, if the bank term funding program had been in in action a week before the failure at SVB, SVB wouldn't have failed. They would have been able to turn to the Fed and say, here, we're going to pledge this. It's if we've got these securities, you give us a loan, we'll pay our depositors. Uh, well, why did the bank term funding program start? Well, because SVB failed. So it protected the other banks, but not the one that fell off the cliff first. So the idea in the banking world is don't be the one at the front of the mass or the one at the back of the mass. Stay right in the middle. It's a very good uh, anchovy uh, school mentality, and that's banking there. <laughs> I got another question that I was just sent from uh, Steve. Is the headline in from New Pack, New Newsmax, the end of the dollar has become, has begun, rather, the feds to launch digital currency July 2023. Steve, the Fed is not launching a digital currency. They have said they're in the very early stages of studying the concept of a digital currency. But Congress would have to act before the Fed could do that. And the dollar, the end of the dollar, has not begun. 
And what being a digital saying, currency wouldn't get rid of the dollar anyway. The digital currency would be the dollar. What they what they Fed announced was they're opening. Yeah, they, in July they're going to open up the Fed Now service. What is the Fed Now service? It means that if you are a qualified borrower, and that typically means bank, by the way, it can mean something else, but it typically means bank. They will a bank will be able to go to the Federal Reserve and have money immediately available to them, pledging collateral. Similar to the program we just got through talking about. Uh, it, it's just a very fast program. Uh, the beta on it, the, the test is, is going to start in July. That is not the beginning of the end of the dollar. No, because when the banks or anybody else borrows in Fed now, they're borrowing dollars. They pay interest on the dollars. Uh, the, the dollar is not about to end. Uh, very frankly, I have been to Newsmax on a number of occasions on stories like this, and I don't know, I kind of doubt that they're intentionally getting it wrong, but they tend to sensationalize something and add a few bits and pieces in there that really aren't there. It, it is, is the, yeah, it is easy to misunderstand this. It really is. Just, I'll give you the simplest way I can possibly say what they're testing as a digital currency. It's if you have a bank, if you have your money at the bank, the, the, there's not paper sitting in the bank that is equivalent to your deposit. You, they might have it there, but it's a tiny percentage of their deposits. Paper is not how we buy things anymore. We don't take cash out of our pocket to pay our mortgage. Uh, it's pretty rare these days. You could probably still do it, but it'd be difficult. So the bank gives your money an electronic signature. This is how much money you have. And in that bank, they have a, an ID number for every penny in the bank. They, so if they move it from one account to another account, that ID number just moves with it. On your paper money, there's an ID number. So that means it's identical to itself and nothing else. It's, in essence, non-fungible. It's unique. And when you have it in electronic format at a bank, they can move it around internally. If you're transferring from one bank to another, when we was talking about the Fed wire earlier, the only way to know that the money really got there or it really existed, each bank has their own name for every penny. So they've got to double check each other. The Federal Reserve is saying, we're just going to give names to all of this and you'll be able to transfer it without a Fed wire because you'll know this identifier exists already and it's unique. The difference between FedNow and the existing system is that if a bank in the middle of the day says, we need a bunch of money, and they have pre-qualified with the Federal Reserve, which is what the FedNow program does, they have this, they have treasury securities, whatever they can pledge, they can get the money same day. It's like the SWIFT program, only faster. The SWIFT program, a bank at the end of the day says, we're going to need more money tomorrow, and they get it tomorrow. It's an overnight program, and, it, it, and the FedWire program is an overnight program. The Fed Now program does not just is again not marking the end of the dollar. It just means that a bank can get money if they pre-qualified and pre-registered and said, "I've got these Treasury securities over here uh, ready to go, and I will immediately pledge them to the Federal Reserve if you send me every time you send me a loan." They can get their money instantly transferred to them, which is very convenient, very important if, if people are trying to pull their deposits out in mass. It's basically to head off the threat of a bank failure because of rising interest rates. Now, once a bank starts doing that a lot, since they're paying more interest on those treasuries probably than they're receiving in interest, then that gives the FDIC and the Federal Reserve and whoever's going to look at them 
plenty of time to take a look and says, looks like you guys are uh, swirling around the, uh, the drain hole. Uh, you're circling the drain. We may need to get somebody to come in here and buy your bank. And they can do it in, a, in an orderly and take some time. And one bank, will, they may assist the bank in buying this bank. Yeah. But and it means the banks will not become insolvent. And that's ultimately for this program. It's ultimately better for the shareholders, not necessarily the depositors, although it can be if FDIC is involved. The, the, uh, SVB was sold to another bank for like a nickel on the dollar for their assets because they were already failed. They were already gone. Even though their assets are worth a tremendous amount of money, you got to take on the liability and show up with a lot of cash. So you can buy at a 95% discount. And what the Federal Reserve is looking at is, hey, we can catch this before it's a failure. So people don't, the shareholders don't lose that much money. It's very similar to what happened in 1991, but spread up. In the 19, early 1990s, we had the savings and loan crisis roll out. And it seems like every bank, well, literally, I think there were one or two banks in the state of Texas, Texas that weren't bought by another bank. But they didn't fail before they were bought. In other words, the Federal Reserve and the FDIC were ahead of the power curve, and they were arranging for banks to buy banks when banks looked like they were getting in trouble. And they would go into the bank that looks like it's getting in trouble and say, guess what? you're going to allow XYZ Bank or whatever to buy your bank. And they say, if they say, no, we don't want to, we want to weather this, they'll say, no, you don't seem to understand. You are about to sign the documents to sell your bank, whether you like it or not, because we said so. Yeah, And they did. And we got through the crisis with a few failures on the front end. And there was another organization set up by Congress and the president uh, called the Resolution Trust Corporation right. that went around so and bought up properties from banks, very much like what the Federal Reserve is doing with loans. And the issue is, of course, that it took weeks to accomplish it. Back then. We've gotten to where we can do it virtually overnight now. And the Federal Reserve, being really smart people, recognize that that's not fast enough in a digital world where somebody can pull up their smartphone liquidate their account, and move the money to another bank. The Fed has got to be able, able to operate just as fast as Peter Thiel with his smartphone. Right. And they can now. Well, they will be in July. It, they, they'll have the system up and running in July. Yes. So uh, we're about out of time for this hour. There's more on that subject. It's a great subject to talk about where to go to hedge against inflation. And we just gave you the answer, but we'll tell you more detail later. If you would like to talk to us off the air, we actually do give fiduciary investment advice instead of just education. There's some of that as well uh, for folks that are relatively high net worth. If uh, you'd like to talk to us off the air, you can uh, reach voicemail during the weekend. Real live people, not a phone tree during the, the week. Uh, locally, the number is 254-947-1111. Presuming you still have a landline, here's a toll-free number of 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. Uh, you can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com, where you will see our made-for-radio faces, our wonderful staff. You can read our newsletter going back lots of years. We write it in-house. Uh, listen to, to our podcasts and radio programs going back a long ways, too. You can contact us on the can contact form or email us at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Until next hour, this has been The Personal Wealth Coach.